Well, good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name's Hans. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it is great to see you all here. And one of the things that we do um, every Sunday is we give a great, uh, give away a great Christian book that will help you if you're a Christian uh, to learn more about God. This is the book that I've given away a number of times this year, and people have really uh, appreciated it. It's my favorite book on the Holy Spirit. It's called Keep in Step with the Spirit by J.I. Packer. If you've got questions about the Holy Spirit, you want to understand what we believe as a church under the Holy Spirit, uh, those kind of things. If you've got questions about gifts and that kind of thing, please grab this book. I'm just going to put it on the front pew, uh, pew as usual. Come and get it. It's free. You don't have to even tell me that you've got it. Um, just come and get it. Um, we're taking a break from Isaiah. Jean Ling will be finishing up our series on Isaiah um, next week. I preached uh, this sermon or a very similar version of this sermon uh, to a bunch of pastors this week, uh, congregational pastors, and a bunch of them said, your people need to hear this sermon. And so for various reasons, I decided to preach on that, and I thank, for the, thank everyone who had to kind of shift Bible readings and that kind of thing to make this happen. But I'm going to pray as we uh, look at God's Word. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, I pray that you would speak to us that the events in this passage that happened some 3,000 odd years ago would come into our lives and, and show it not only its relevance, but you would help us to see you through this passage. And so, Lord, I pray that we would walk away from here more ready, more willing, more able to worship you and serve you with our whole lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me tell you about one of the darkest kind of events in my life or periods in my life. Uh, before I was the pastor here, I was the pastor of a church called Resolved. It was a, it was a church plant in Newtown and uh, it, we had to close it down because almost from the start it didn't go well. I, I poured eight years of my life into it and I can remember probably the lowest point was when I went to a pastor's conference. There was a pastor named Tim Keller. If you know Tim Keller, he's one of my favorite preachers. It was amazing. I was thinking, this is great. But it started, from memory, it started on a Monday. And what you've got to realize about pastors and Monday mornings is this is our lowest point of the week. We're remembering all the things that we didn't say in the sermon, all the things that didn't go wrong, or that went wrong or went right, all that kind of thing. The adrenaline of the day before is then comes down to like this crash of no adrenaline of Monday morning. And here I was at this pastor's conference. And the night before the 5 p.m. service at our church, we only had one service, there was about 18 people. There was 18 people and nothing was going right in the church. If we had anyone who was new who would come, if they said they were visiting another church... I thought, well, that's the last time we're going to see them. Uh, the money was going down and we were desperate for money and it looked like we, ha we were going to have to close very soon because of money. And I had some people on staff and that, there was trouble there even. And so I was walking into this pastor's conference just really low and I knew what was coming. So what you've got to realise is that pastors aren't allowed to brag because we're meant to be Christians. And so what we will do is we will tell you things are going well, but we'll couch it in a prayer point. And so that's what I got. I rocked up there and I saw a friend. I said, I said how, how, how are you going? He goes, oh, brother, you can pray for me. 
because we, we planted a church only two months ago and we've already got two and a half thousand people and it's just hard to know how to pastor all those people. You can pray for me because it's really weighing on me. And I said, okay, I'll pray for you. And I, and I walked five metres and, and there, I, I ran into another person and he said, oh, brother, you can pray for me. Bill Gates and Elon Musk just became Christians at church and they've started to tithe and we just don't know what we're going to do with a budget of $60 billion a year, right? And then, you know, I talked to another one and, and, and he said, oh, brother, you could pray for me because we just put, put a bunch of people on staff, 450 people on staff and they've all got PhDs from Cambridge or England or Cambridge or Oxford and I, it's hard because I know they wanted to work with me but could you pray that I would lead them well? Now, you know I'm being a bit hyperbolic here, right? But that was kind of the prayers that, that people were asking me to pray. Here I was with a church that seemed to be failing, money's going down, problems with staff. I felt like the biggest failure in the world. And I can remember as the conference started, I was sitting in the second row. No one was sitting around me, which I, I, I wanted. And as the music was on, as, as the singing came on, I remember I just started to cry. I felt like the biggest failure. I didn't want to be there. And I was just like, what am I doing even with my life? And to make matters worse, they had a band from the States out, and they were a great band. They did a fantastic job. The lead singer, the, the lady who was singing, for some reason, locked eyes with me. And it was probably only five seconds, but it felt like a millennia. And, uh, and she locked eyes with me as she was singing. And then in the coffee break at morning tea, it seemed like she sought me out because she came to me. She saw me across you know, the room and I just kind of did this because I didn't want to talk to her. She came over and she said, oh, brother, I just want to tell you, I think it's amazing when the Holy Spirit really moves someone in worship. And I said... Yeah, the Holy Spirit was really moving, sister. Thank you for that. I didn't have the heart to tell her that actually I felt like a biggest loser and I was having this massive pity party. I wonder if you've gone through times when it's been really dark, when, it's, when it seems like there's, there's no hope, when it seems like it is so, so hard. Maybe you're going through one of those points now, right? Life right now... It's just really dark. And, and it seems like there's no hope. And you're, you're wondering, well, what should I do? Well, what am I meant to do right now? Maybe you're here and life is going well. I just want you to cheer up because guess what? what? One day, life will be really dark. And you've got to ask the question, what are you going to tell yourself? What are you going to do then? The, the great news is we're looking at a passage And it's all about a woman whose life is not going well. She's in a really dark time. Her her life, her body is not doing what she wanted it to do. And we're going to see what we should do, what all people of faith should do when life is not going well and, and, and it's really dark. When life is not going well and things are really dark and there seems to be no hope, we should do three things. We should remember how God works, remember to pray, and remember our hope. 
When life is going really hard or, or go, and it's really dark, we should remember to do three things. Remember how God works, remember to pray, and remember our hope. So with that in mind, let's jump into the first point. When life is going really hard, when it's dark, we should remember how God works. Have a look at verse 1 of cha- Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man from Ramathame, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. Now, you're probably going, man, like, that's just background information. That's nice to know. Actually, that's really crucial information. I wonder if you saw where he's from and the tribe he's from. He's from the tribe of Ephraim, and he lives in the area of Ephraim, the hill country of Ephraim. Now, you don't need to know where that is. I won't bore you with the geography, but the writer of Samuel is making a huge point. If you flip over a couple of chapters back, a couple of uh, pages back in your, in your Bible, you will land in at the end of the book of Judges. And at the end of the book of Judges, chapters 18 to 21, a bunch of terrible things happen. There's rape, there's murder, there's dismemberment, there's, just, there's kidnapping, there's all these terrible things that happen. Where does that happen? In the hill country of Ephraim. And what you've got to realize, the way, where I date, and I won't get into all the history because I'm a history buff and it's probably boring for most of you, but basically the start of 1 Samuel overlaps with the book of Ruth, but it also overlaps with the end of Judges. So here we are, Israel is in a very, very, very dark place. This is one of the lowest points in the history of Israel. And so we see this man, Ephraim. But what what happens, verse 2, he had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Paniah. Now what you've got to realize is that in the original, it actually literally says the first was Hannah. So Hannah was married first, and because she couldn't have children, Paniah was on the scene. And can you just think, imagine how hard it was for Paniah? Think of how uh, you just felt like you were there to be used as a womb, basically. And, And can you imagine how much tension there would be in this family, how much jealousy there is in this family? And so what do they do? Verse 3, year after year, this man went up from his house, from his town to worship and sacrifice the Lord Almighty, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of, were priests of the Lord. So here they are. They're going up to worship. They're worshipping in a place called Shiloh, which to this point, many things had happened in the book of Joshua and Judges, where, where God had spoken. And so, so what is God going to do here? Is he going to do something, something amazing maybe? And they're going to worship. But did you see who they're worshipping? They're going to worship to the Lord Almighty, literally the, the Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. It, it, it gives this picture of God who is in control and sovereign over everything. That is the God they're going to worship. But as I said, this is a very, very, very dark time. Israel is broken and in a very dark and hopeless place. And here you have Hannah. She is broken and in a very dark and homeless place. 
But what we're going to see in the book, if you read the book, the rest of the book of Samuel, please do, it's an amazing book. What you see is, here is the beginning of God raising up kings to lead his people. God is doing something through this. And God is going to intervene. See, what we've got to realize is this. When God's people are without strength, without hope, when God's people are without the very things that they are relying on, without human gimmicks, when God's people is without that, that is usually when God stretches out his hand of hope. God stretches out his hand at the darkest times. I mean, remember all the way through the Bible, that's what he does. Israel, at the start of the book of Exodus, is in slavery for 400 years. God raises up Moses. When the nation of Judah is in apostasy, God raises up Josiah after, after the exile. Well, when the, the, the exile people who were exiled to Babylon come back, God raises Ezra and Nehemiah. When, when, when God's people is under the crush of the Roman rule, God raises up Jesus as the Saviour. When, when God's people are at their lowest point, at the darkest time, that is usually when God is beginning a work. And think about the darkest point in human history where we crucify God. And yet, that is when he was saving us. When it looks dark for us, God is usually working. God's tendency is usually to make our powerlessness his starting point. Our hopelessness and helplessness are not barriers to his work. When we are at our ends, usually that is when God is just beginning. In the manure of our terrible situation, God springs a flower of hope. Now, here's what I don't want to say. I'm not saying that if you just trust God enough or you pray in a certain way, that whatever you're going through is going to just magically disappear. I am not saying for one second that if your, your marriage is hard today, if you just pray in a certain way, guess what? Tomorrow your marriage will be 100%. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying if you're sick today, that, that if you've just got to have faith and pray in a certain way, that, that God will instantly heal you. That's not what I'm saying at all. And I'm not saying if, if your job or your finances or anything like that you know, is going bad and if you just pray a certain way or have faith, guess what? God is going to change that. No, that's the prosperity gospel. We do not believe that here because the Bible doesn't teach it. What I am saying, however, is this. That what we've got to realize is that God is still working in the darkest times. In our darkness and despair, God is still working. Think about Hannah for a second. This is her darkest time, and yet through her story and through her life, God is going to give her a son. He is going to anoint the first king, and her story ends up in the Bible. Can you imagine getting to heaven and, and how surprised Hannah's going to be? 
that she thought all she was doing was praying to God for a son gave the, and had a son. And 3,200 years later, Marsfield Community Church is being encouraged by her story. That's how God works. God works in, in ways that we don't understand. And so in the hardships of our lives, we keep trusting God because God works by giving us hope that he is still working all the way through our darkness. So maybe you're in a marriage right now that's very hard. That's very, very hard. And maybe, maybe there's that someone that you're thinking, oh, well, that person is so much nicer than my spouse. But imagine if you stayed and you sowed into your marriage, you worked hard on your marriage, and you raised your children to follow Jesus, and then your children married someone who follows Jesus, and then your grandchild became the next great preacher, the next Spurgeon, the next... Philip Jansen, the next Billy Graham. And one of, one of the factors for that was you staying in that marriage and not sleeping with that person at the office. Or imagine, imagine through your finances, you kept being generous with your finances even though your finances are in trouble. And you kept giving to that missionary over in Africa. And that missionary over in Africa saw one pastor that they were that, that, that they were teaching in a Bible college. That one pastor converts a village. And from that village, there's one kid who gets converted there. And he becomes the Billy Graham of Africa. And a flood of people will come to know Jesus. And God worked despite your financial hardship through your generosity because you were faithful through that. We believe in a God who does amazing things even though we may not be able to see them. That's how God works. And so through the darkest of the times, what we've got to keep remembering is how God works. Because what we've got to realize is this, that God in your life right now is doing probably a thousand things. And you might be able to see one of them. But he's doing far more in your life and through your life than you can ever imagine. One day you are going to, you're, you are going to go to heaven and you're going to be blown away by what God did through your life. So remember in the dark times, remember how God works. But second of all, remember to pray. Have a look at verse 4 with me. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he will give portions of the meat to his wife, Benaiah, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Can you see the tension within the family, right? 
you know, Hannah, because she's more loved than, than Paniah, is given a double portion. Literally in the, the original, this is just a funny thing. Um, it, she is given two noses of food. Literally, the nose is meant to be the best part that you give to the kings. She is given two of those, which we would go, thanks, I'll have a, you know, a, a T-bone or something. But, you know, that's what she got, right? So, so she is loved, but her rival, Paniah, is provoking her. Can, can you just imagine Paniah's going, hey, hey, Levi, do you reckon you can go and get, um, go and get uh, you know, a drink from over there for me? Um, Hannah, why don't you call your son? Oh, sorry. I forgot. Can, can you imagine the tension? Can you imagine the heartbreak that Hannah's going through? And in verse 6, sorry, verse 7, this went on year after year, year after year, when, whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would not say, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you down, downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than her, her ten sons? He loves her, but can you, can you get how he just doesn't get what she's going through with those three whys? What, why, are you, why, why are you weeping? Oh, isn't it obvious I haven't got a child? Why don't you eat? I'm so depressed that I cannot eat. Why are you downhearted? Hey, haven't we had this conversation before? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Yes, you mean a lot to me. You're my husband I love. But I, I want a child. In her deepest anguish, not even her husband gets this. So what does she do? Verse 9. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. In her deep anguish, what's the first thing that she does? She prays. She prays. And it's very easy just to kind of brush that off. But when we're in deep anguish, do we pray? When we're in trouble, do we pray? Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was on Facebook and there's a group I'm part of. There are a bunch of pastors, about a thousand of us. And, um, and there's a lot of guys from a particular, don- oh, it's, it's Anglican, right? It's the Anglican don- denomination. And there were some studies came out that showed while um, clergy numbers are going up in the Anglican church, while finances are going really up in the Anglican church, the, the attendance rate is going down, the conversion rates are going down. And what was very interesting was the, the, what the comments were on that post. The comments were, oh, what are we doing wrong? We need to do strategize. We need to think. Only one person in 22 comments said we should pray. And that was pray that God would change the way we do things. So it was like pray that God would change the strategy. Not pray that God would actually flood this land with the Holy Spirit so that conversions would happen. And I felt really self-righteous, right? Because I was like, silly Anglicans not praying, right? That's what I thought. And then I looked at my diary and I saw in my diary, in my to-do list, there's a problem that that I'm dealing with. There's always issues in organizations and churches and part of my job is to work work them through. There's no big deal here. But I I looked at it and I thought, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this. I felt like God was saying to me, you just judge the Anglicans for not praying, 
And you're doing exactly the same thing, hands. Because it's so easy when there's a problem to plan rather than pray, isn't it? And here's, here is Hannah and she is praying. How's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? When there's a problem, what's your first reaction or response? Is it to pray? When when there's no hope, when it it seems like everything's going well or going wrong, do you pray? Do you pray? Here we see in the rest of it that there's Eli. He doesn't actually recognize her praying, but God does. He doesn't know who she is, but God does. And what does she pray? She prays for a son. Have a look. At verse 11, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you would only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Basically, she's saying, God, if you give me a child, I will give him back to you. He will live in the temple. No razor will touch his head. Basically, he will be a Nazarite, a special person who is going to serve you forever. That's what he's going to do. But I think it's phenomenal that here she is a powerless woman in a very dark time. She's insignificant. She's obscure. She's irrelevant. And yet, she's confident that the God of the universe is hearing her prayers. I wonder if you feel sometimes really irrelevant to the world. I wonder if you feel really obscure sometimes. I wonder if you feel really powerless. The beautiful thing is the sovereign God and King of the universe loves to hear the prayers of obscure irrelevant and powerless people. That's what God loves to do. And did you notice what she wants from her son? All she wants from her son is that he would love God and serve him. That's all. I wonder what you are praying for your children. I wonder what you're parenting your children. I wonder, I wonder if your kids have got the idea that the main thing that you want for their lives is to follow Jesus. Because I think we have the wrong emphasis a lot of the time. I, know I can see this in my life. I hope my kids haven't heard from me that all I want them is to obey me, right? But I think that's the vibe they get. But I should be more like Hannah. The only thing that I should want, the main thing, sorry, that I should want is for my kids to follow Jesus and I need to parent like that. How's your parenting and praying going? Are you a parent that prays? Hannah was. So in in the darkness of our lives, what should we do? We should pray. We should remember to pray. And finally, when life is not going well in the darkness of our lives, we should remember our hope. Have a look at verse 19 with me. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, 
and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Now notice, what you've got to realize, very, very, it's very important, is that Hannah didn't have a son because she had sex. Hannah had a son because God remembered her prayers. The remembering there is not just like, you know, man, has this ever happened to you? It probably hasn't, but it happens to me when your wife asks you to do something and you forget and she asks you eight times. How many wives are just looking at their husbands right now, right? You know? And then, oh, you go, oh yeah, I remember. It's not that remembering. The, the remembering that God does is he doesn't forget and he remembers to act. Here is God not forgetting but remembering to act and that's exactly what he does here. And then what does she do? She actually takes her, her son that she really wanted and when he is weaned, he's probably four or five years old at this point, takes him to the temple and, and hands him over to God. Why does she do that? Because she knows Her hope is not in her son. It's in the Lord God who gave her a son. Are you remembering through the trials of life where your hope is? Your your hope is not in having a great marriage or great kids or a great career. Your hope is in the Lord Jesus himself. And when when life is dark, you've got to remember that. You have to remember that. 1 Samuel is all about the rise and start of kingship. It, It narrates the struggles of powerful men. But here we see it starts with a powerless woman and her powerful God. She sees her hope is in her powerful God, not in her offspring. The beginning of this book graciously starts with a gracious God giving a beautiful barren woman a son because she trusts in him through the darkness of her life. Are you remembering the hope that you have through the hardships of your life? There was a a preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones. You may have heard about him. And in the last few years of his life, he's a very, very famous preacher. A lot of people call him the doctor because he's a medical doctor before he, before he went as a preacher. And um, in the last few years of his life, he, he had cancer. He ended up dying of cancer. And he was basically stuck at home, infirm. He couldn't do anything, couldn't preach, could write a little bit, that, but that's pretty much it. And a good friend of his came over and he said, like, do you ever feel, like, really down? Like, you were a great preacher, you were all this thing, but, but, but now he used the phrase, now you're on the shelf. How do you feel right now? And Martin Lloyd-Jones, he quoted Luke 10.20, where Jesus says, Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. What do you rejoice in today? What is your hope? 
I think of Jesus around here, he would say, do not rejoice that your life is going really well right now, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And conversely, do not despair that your life is going really poorly right now, but rejoice in the fact that your name is written in heaven. Do, do, not, do not rejoice that your marriage is going really well, but rejoice for the fact that your name is written in heaven. Uh, and conversely, do not despair that your marriage is not going well, but, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Do, do, not, do not rejoice that your children are amazing and, and everything's going well. Right? No, but rejoice that your, that your name is written in heaven. Don't despair if your children aren't where, they're, where you want them to be, but rejoice that your, that your name is written in heaven. Do not rejoice that your career is going well, that there's more and more money in your bank account. No, rejoice that your, that your name is written in heaven. And do not despair that your career is not going well, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Do not rejoice at the fact that you're, you feel alive and fit and well, but rejoice and the fact that your name is written in heaven. And conversely, do not, do not despair that you are unwell, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. What is your perspective? Hannah remembered her great hope in God. We should remember where our hope is and rejoice in our great hope. And brothers and sisters, that's why church is so important, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever gotten up on a Sunday morning and you've just thought, man, I don't want to go to church. Or is it just me, right? Some of you guys are laughing, right? I have to go because I get paid, right? But, but there are some times, you know, you don't, you don't want to go to church, right? You, you're tired. You've got tons of stuff on. You just like to just kick back in bed, maybe watch some Netflix or something, right? But why do you come to church? Why do you come to church when, when it feels like all you're going to do, come to church, and as you sing, you're just going to cry like I did at that Tim Keller conference? Or, or, or you're going to come to church even though your life seems to be falling apart and there's, there's no hope? Why are you going to come? It's because church is going to remind you where your hope is. That your hope is not in your career, your finances, your family, your friends, your whatever. Your hope is in Jesus. And as you hear God's word and as you sing his praises and pray to him, your heart comes back into line with your hope. So no matter what is happening in life, do not miss church. Because church reminds you of your great hope, the Lord Jesus. Some of us, our lives are really going nowhere near how we thought they would go. Just like Hannah. But just like Hannah, we've got to remember how God works. That he works bringing hope through these dark situations in ways that we could never imagine. We've got to remember to pray to the God who loves to hear the prayers of insignificant powerless and obscure people and we've got to remember that our hope is in the Lord Jesus and that one day as Revelation 21 says 
He's going to wipe away every tear. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that in the darkest of situations, because of Jesus, there's always great hope. Lord, help us, help us all, especially those of us who are going through really hard times now, to remember that you are the God who is working in our lives, doing a thousand things right now, and we, we might not even see any of them, but you are at work. Help in our grief, in our darkness, in, in our depression. Help us to pray to you, because you are the God that loves to hear the prayers of powerless, hopeless, insignificant people like us. And Lord, help us to always remember that our hope is not in the things of this world, but it's in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that we have got great hope today because of all that Jesus has done for us. Amen.